My whole career was in the balance over this badly phrased tweet, the substance of which something like 76% of Americans agreed with. In early 2022, Ilya Shapiro was about to start a new job as the executive director of the Center for the Constitution at Georgetown University when he was suspended for a, quote, racist tweet. This is not the Berkeley hippies. In fact, the Berkeley hippies now, you know, boomer professors, are afraid of this illiberal, radical left that seems to want to cancel, if not kill them, for having divergent views. We discuss the limits of free speech, when it veers into conduct or harassment, and how to balance the First Amendment with Title VI and other civil rights laws, especially on college campuses. A lot of what's been going on the last couple of months is not even speech to begin with. You do not escape criminal liability for, say, public urination on a building just because you're saying, I'm being expressive in showing my displeasure for the organization that inhabits that building, or tearing down posters off private property because I'm expressing my disdain for what those posters are saying. No. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Ilya Shapiro, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Good to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. So not too long ago in 2022, you were pretty well known and pretty well regarded, specializing in constitutional law, and then you tweeted something that wasn't very popular. So just t tell me about what happened. When I was at the, uh, the very end of my tenure at the Cato Institute, libertarian think tank here in Washington, uh, I decided um, I had this opportunity to have an impact in a different way as a constitutional scholar, uh, as a public commentator, uh, as a teacher, to move to Georgetown and be the executive director of their Center for the Constitution. Now, a few days before I was due to start that job, uh, uh, early in 2022, uh, was when news of Justice Breyer's retirement broke. And I was doing a lot of media about that. I had written a book on the politics of judicial nominations and Supreme Court uh, confirmation battles, so uh, very timely. Uh, wh whenever something like this happens, I'm uh, in demand in the media. Uh, and after a day of doing all this and getting more and more upset at President Biden, for sticking with his pledge during the campaign that he would nominate a black woman, that is, he would restrict his pool of candidates by race and sex. Uh, late at night in my hotel room, I was in Austin, Texas, not a best practice to be doom-scrolling Twitter and, and, and firing something off late at night. Uh, I said, uh, you know, 
if I were a Democratic president, I think I would pick the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, uh, the, the second most prestigious court uh, in the country, uh, a man by the name of Sri Srinivasan, happens to be Indian-American and an immigrant, has a lot of diversity points uh, as well. But I said, uh, due to the latest hierarchy of intersectionality, uh, he wasn't being considered, and we would end up with a, quote, lesser black woman. Meaning that it was an infelicitously phrased, but I simply meant that if I considered Judge Srinivasan to be the best, then everyone else in the universe was less qualified, including the eventual black woman that uh, President Biden would choose. Uh, the next morning, I went to bed after this, then all heck had broken loose on, on Twitter overnight, and the next morning there was a firestorm uh, I might have been fired. I mean, it was, uh, it was very close whether Georgetown would rescind my offer even right then. But ultimately what happened after these, uh, what I characterize as four days of hell, it was very unnerving. My whole career was in the balance over this uh, badly phrased tweet, with the substance of which something like 76% of Americans agreed with, that the president should consider all possible candidates. But anyway, um, after these four days of hell, the dean, Bill Trainer, at Georgetown, decided that I would be onboarded, but I'd be immediately suspended with pay pending uh, investigation into whether I had violated the university's harassment and anti-discrimination policies. And that so-called investigation, uh, it, 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 it became clear rather quickly that this was a, uh, a sham. It lasted four months to investigate a tweet, uh, even though the university had clear protections on paper uh, for the freedom of speech. Well, so let me quote something. I just happen to have something here that Bill Trainer said. He says, you know, the university does have a free speech and expression policy that binds us, but, quote, since we're a private institution, the First Amendment doesn't apply to us. Um, and it's not the First Amendment that's the university's guideline. What do you think? That's correct. Private universities uh, are not bound uh, by the protections of the First Amendment. Now, a lot of them, including the ones that have been in the news lately uh, with the disastrous testimony by the presidents of uh, Penn, uh, Harvard, and MIT, now the former president of Penn, she's already resigned. Uh, these so-called elite schools do have broadly protective free speech policies that are essentially the same as the First Amendment. In Georgetown's, uh, with which I'm very familiar, of course, uh, uh, says that the mere fact that someone is uh, uncomfortable or objects to something that someone says uh, does not make it unprotected. Um, you know, there is a harassment policy, but uh, the law and, and uh, school or employer policies uh, define harassment as you know, targeting someone, making it hard for them to, to work, or, or, or what have you. This, well, I'm sure we'll get into this over the discussion of anti-Semitism on campus. Uh, but um, Georgetown ended up, at the end of these four months, this, this sham investigation, uh, they cleared me, Dean Trainer cleared me, on the technicality that I wasn't yet an employee when I tweeted. But mm. it took some high-powered lawyers, same firm that uh, briefed or prepared the university presidents for their testimony, by the way, Wilmer Hale, very expensive, very prestigious D.C. firm, was Georgetown's advisor in my investigation. Uh, and, and it took some junior associate four months to look at a calendar and see I was an employee. But anyway, I ultimately got this report from the diversity office, the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action that was investigating me, uh, which made clear that had I been an employee, then I would have been subject to discipline because uh, I was creating an, a hostile educational environment. And indeed, um, the standard that they were applying was that if someone, not just me, but this was clearly a shot across the bow to other faculty and staff, uh, that if you say something that someone even claims offense to, 
then, then that puts you back in the Kafkaesque uh, inquisition, uh, uh, if you will. And so uh, I decided I could not work like that. I couldn't do the job I was hired to do, which was partly public facing, partly teaching students about controversial Supreme Court cases. Um, I'd have a sword of Damocles over me. And so I came to this realization and uh, I knew I had to quit. So uh, uh, as one does, I wrote up a resignation letter that was published in the Wall Street Journal uh, and away we went. Uh, the next day I, I announced my move uh, to the Manhattan Institute where I am to this day. I announced that on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. So four days of hell, four months of purgatory, if you will, and then I was finally in control of the media narrative uh, exposing the rot in academia, which we've seen a lot more of these last couple of months. Just, I mean, you've started to talk about this, but why do you characterize the investigation as a sham? Uh, this is a law school, one of the one of the supposedly elite, uh, most prestigious law schools in the country. You know, when when you investigate a legal claim, a charge, you know, have I violated the harassment or 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 discrimination policies, it doesn't take a long time to apply the law, these policies, which are rather short, to the facts, even shorter, a couple of tweets, uh, and come up with a conclusion. And here the conclusion seemed rather obvious that um, I had spoken something that some people didn't like. Uh, I wasn't targeting anyone, uh, you know, wasn't uh, uh, taking a decision based on race or sex. In fact, I was criticizing President Biden's decision based on, on race or sex. Uh, and so it shouldn't have taken long regardless for, you know, assign it to the most junior faculty member or something uh, to come up with a conclusion. But clearly, they didn't want to make a decision until the students were off campus. And indeed, the dean, I had a couple of interactions with them over Zoom because this was still COVID days and we couldn't meet in person without wearing masks and all that nonsense. So, uh, he, he was like a deer in headlights and uh, just did not want to take a decision one way or another. Uh, didn't like that I had put him in this position where he had to demonstrate leadership and I think ultimately failed. Um, you know, the, these college leaders, most of them, uh, are not woke radicals. They're not social justice warriors. Uh, they're not anti-free speech per se. What they are is spineless cowards. They're careerist bureaucrats who have learned how to climb the greasy pole um, following the, the, the incentives that they have to rise within academic bureaucracy, part of which is to mollify and placate uh, the, the, the activists who are very loud uh, on the left uh, and the bureaucracies that have sprung up that are often the, the tail that wags the dog. We no longer so much have faculty governance as governance by these bureaucratic structures, and especially the last five, ten years, by the DEI structures, the diversity, equity, uh, uh, inclusion, which uh, inculcate an illiberal ideology, uh, which is at cross purposes with the classical liberal mission of institutions of higher education, of seeking open inquiry, looking for the truth, building human knowledge, uh, that is aided by such values as free speech, academic freedom, due process, treating everyone equally. Uh, these things are seen as uh, anathema to these kind of uh, postmodern theories that these bureaucracies uh, uh, are there to uh, instill. So I want to touch on you. You talked about these three you know, Ivy League presidents that were, you know, created their own firestorm recently. You don't high, hold it in very high esteem, but I want to look at that from the lens of a constitutional scholar, of a free speech uh, expert. So, so why why is what they said problematic? Uh, the, the, the first point is that they approach this like a deposition, as if they were involved in a lawsuit 
and their lawyers were telling them, you know, talk a lot without saying much, don't admit liability. It was a very dry, bloodless presentation. Is it okay to call for genocide? Well, it depends. Well, I mean, if you were giving a sophisticated, nuanced legal answer, as I'm about to, to you, uh, it depends on the context, there's something to that. But this was a public hearing for public consumption. It was a moral exercise. It was a political uh, exercise. To not begin the answer to that question with, well, of course we condemn any institution of higher education condemns a call for genocide against any group that is uh, antithetical uh, to our mission. Uh, now, uh, speech is protected, and there is no calling for genocide exception to uh, the First Amendment and to our broad free speech policies that, uh, that track First Amendment protections. Uh, the problem was they couldn't say that because uh, they had not enforced the freedom of speech at their schools. Countless professors have been uh, investigated and disciplined. Uh, students have been expelled uh, for much uh, lesser offenses than calling for genocide, uh, using the wrong pronoun, uh, triggering someone in some way, just saying something that's politically incorrect, as we used to say. Um, uh, and uh, it, it uh, surveys of whether elite schools or more broadly across the country shows that students and faculty uh, are chilled. They feel like they're walking on eggshells. They can't express themselves. They can't even discuss certain subjects, regardless of what viewpoint they might have, uh, because they're going to be canceled in some way by their institution, by this investigation, by whether it's HR or the diversity office. Uh, that says that uh, you know certain values are more important than free speech or what have you. So anyway, going back to the president's presentation, you know, after saying we have broad speech protections, but uh, as we've seen in the last couple of months, sometimes these rallies or demonstrations uh, or anti-Israel chants uh, become harassment or vandalism or assault. Does M at MIT does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's? code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The 
the speech is not harassment, this is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. These things are not protected. They violate our Code of Conduct, and uh, we, we're going to investigate and, and punish those kinds of instances. That's true. A lot of what's been going on the last couple of months is not even speech to begin with. Uh, you, you do not uh, uh, escape uh, criminal liability uh, for, say, public urination on a building just because you're saying, I'm being expressive in showing my displeasure for the organization that inhabits that building, or tearing down posters off private property because I'm expressing my disdain for what those posters are saying. Uh, no, whatever your purpose is, you're engaged in conduct uh, uh, that can be punished. Uh, and then the second category uh, is exceptions to um, First Amendment protections. So if I make a direct, what the courts call a true threat against someone, if they are objectively in fear of uh, physical harm, uh, you can be arrested and prosecuted for that. There was a student at Cornell about a month ago that posted a bunch of vile things, not just saying vile things, not just from the river to the sea or intifado or, you know, uh, hurt all the Jews, not even something general like that, but specifically uh, talking about people making threats and he was properly uh, arrested or incitement of violence. That's a high bar. There was some discussion of this over whether President Trump incited violence on January 6th. And so there's been you know, uh, some familiarity with the very high standard that the Supreme Court has put in place, namely that there has to be a call for imminent and direct uh, violence that's uh, closely tied uh, to the speech. So just generally saying, and this is why we should have genocide of the Jews, uh, that is not enough to be incitement of violence. It might be harassment, if it's uh, outside of the Jewish uh, Life Center, the Hillel, or what have you, or it's not a dorm where Israeli students are, or something like that. Stalking, intimidation, all of these might violate either school rules uh, or the criminal law. Uh, but just saying something like that in you know, public square at a rally, that's not enough to be incitement. Now, if, if the speaker says, kill all the Jews, and therefore, today, right, starting right now, any Jew you see on campus, punch them in the face, that could be uh, incitement of violence. So th those are some exceptions. 
that, again, it takes a while to explain all this. So if the presidents really wanted to be technocratic and legalistic, they would have had to say uh, all of that. Uh, but they, they try to fudge it and say, well, it depends, which is, again, not a good PR maneuver for a congressional hearing. But anyway, this third bucket that's very important for your viewers to understand uh, is time, place, and manner regulations. That is, even for protected speech, even for, you know, forget conduct, forget a true threat or incitement, something that's clearly protected, a political opinion say. You can't say that whenever, wherever, however you want. I can't go to your neighborhood in the middle of the night with a megaphone uh, start yelling about what I think about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. There are the, speech ordinances and so forth. That's right. right. Like, that's you, right. Yeah, yeah. On university campuses, there are rules about not disrupting classes. Or if a student organization has reserved a room to have a speaker, you can't shout down that speaker. Or if they've reserved a space to have a rally, you can't have your counter rally and try to disrupt them. Again, time, place, and manner uh, regulations. These are perfectly appropriate, uh, just like people being now arrested for blocking streets and interstates. Uh, just because they have an expressive purpose, you can apply this time, place, and manner regulation that says you can't uh, impede the, the right of way and, and, and things like that. So those are the, the general uh, things to think about as, as we've been uh, observing what's been going on uh, on campuses. Well, you know, as you're describing all this, I can't help think back to, as I have on a number of episodes of American Thought Leaders, um, to Herbert Marcuse and his vision of repressive tolerance. Essentially the idea that for for some people, everything should be tolerated, and for the others, the bad people, the conservatives and people like that, nothing should be tolerated. In fact, we can actually do all sorts of bad things to them because they're bad. I mean, that's a very glib way situational, of describing it. Situational yeah. ethics or um, you know, uh, ends justify the means, uh, that's right. And that's a huge reason why DEI is so problematic, because what DEI is is not civil rights law traditional civil rights law that you can't discriminate based on race and sex and other protected categories. That was there when I was in college and law school 20, 25 years ago. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, uh, you can apply that. Uh, we don't need whole new bureaucracies to, to impose it. Um, and in fact, all of these calls to abolish DEI, which I've been a part of, uh, my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, Chris Rufo, and I, in January, proposed model legislation that's been taken up by a number of states. Uh, most recently, uh, as we record this uh, uh, just a few days ago, uh, the governor of Oklahoma signed an executive order defunding DEI bureaucracies at uh, uh, Oklahoma uh, public universities. Uh, that's all to the good, but that doesn't touch the lawyers who are enforcing federal and state civil rights law. So this is not about that. This is about uh, uh, an ideological structure uh, that views everything, that teaches that everything has to be viewed through the lens of identity, whether that's race or sexual orientation or gender or what have you, uh, and everybody needs to be evaluated based on your level of privilege, whether you're part of the oppressor or the oppressed class, where you are in the overall intersectional hierarchy. Um, and so some speech is more valuable than others. Some speakers can be shouted down because they come from a position of privilege and they're the oppressor class. Some cannot be. So um, this all comes from critical theory from the 30s and 40s in, in, in Austria and Germany, ironically fleeing the Nazis to impose a different kind of illiberal uh, ideology. Uh, uh, started in sociology departments, philosophy departments. In the 70s and 80s, there was a bit of a flare-up of various critical theories, the crits, uh, in English and even in law schools. By the time I was in law school 20 years ago, it sort of had flamed out, uh, but now it's back uh, with a vengeance.
So perhaps this is why you've been described as an embodiment of white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone who uh, is for classical liberal values is for, for, is for white supremacy under this rubric. Um, th there's, there were some uh, words or, or, or a, uh, a glossary of, of terms that came out of Stanford maybe six months ago, eight months ago. Those are indicia of white supremacy because they support current structures, whereas uh, these critical postmodern theories say that all current structures are illegitimate. They need to be burnt down and reestablished based on uh, these, you know, oppression Olympics and intersectional hierarchies. So, you know, you mentioned that you decided to quit. Do you feel like you were canceled? Um, I feel like I canceled them. So they tried to cancel me. Mm. Um, and what, what maybe what is what is being canceled? Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, a, a good approximation, I think uh, Nicholas Christakis, who's a Yale professor who was quote unquote canceled from uh, being the master, now called the, I guess, the head of, of, of one of the residential colleges. Master is another word that's not allowed because it, it harkens to slavery and, and so forth. And there are some places where uh, doing work in the field, you do field research, the word field is not allowed because that harkens to slavery. I mean, not only slaves work in the field. A anyway, there, there's some bizarre. Uh, you know, denial of, of basic objective truths and the meaning of, of, of words and, and so forth. But anyway, Nick Christakis, uh, who uh, famously was yelled at and, and uh, uh, pushed away from, from heading up this college, his definition uh, is very pithy of cancel culture, saying punishment, uh, disproportionate punishment uh, for something you said that is clearly within the Overton window, the mainstream, socially acceptable range of views. Um, so, uh, you know, people celebrating Hamas, celebrating the atrocities and barbarities and baby killing and gang rape and all the rest of it that Hamas uh, uh, perpetrated on October 7th and then being, their jobs being rescinded, uh, maybe that's meritorious because it would be uh, uh, hard for people like that to, uh, you know, to, to function normally in a, in a big business or in a, in a law firm you or something. You wouldn't want to entrust the, for example, the development of our young people to folks that we're doing. At least that's sure. my that's my own personal sure, observation. Sure, sure, right? sure. I mean, you can you can yeah. characterize it in different ways. Or, or for example, at Stanford earlier this year, when when students shouted at a federal judge, "We hope your daughters get raped." Now, I don't think it's improper cancel culture for a law firm to then rescind that or, or not hire a student who was involved in that way. But anyway, that's kind of a rough approximation of cancel culture. I was expressing a view uh, against uh, racial and, and, and gender preferences for the selection of high public officials. Uh, again, a view that's supported by a vast majority of American people, according to that rabid right-wing outlet ABC News, it was 76%. It's not just, you know, the Ted Cruz's of the world that were supporting my position. You know, most Americans uh, thought that. Uh, I, I could have expressed it be better. It was a failure of communication. Again, when you're tweeting, it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily think about that as much as you do when you're writing an op-ed or, or even speaking uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a conversation like this one, even though it's, it's spontaneous and, and, and not scripted. But, um, and so I was investigated. I was, you know, uh, the, the, the process is the punishment. Um, in, in many of these circumstances. The first few days, like I said, were, were the worst because, you know, did I throw away my entire career? I was changing jobs. It was a vulnerable position. I have four little kids. I mean, it's, it was tough. Uh, but then um, it, it quickly became farcical uh, and, 
you know, I, I again was speaking about the Supreme Court. My counsel said, don't criticize Georgetown because that's ongoing, but otherwise you're free to, you know, do your normal job. So, so I did. You know, I was reinstated, so I wasn't canceled in, in that respect, uh, but I canceled Georgetown. I say I, I could not work under the conditions that you have now created. You've changed the terms of the job. I'm not going to work like that. And I've been using this platform that I've been given. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting to become, you know, I've always been for free speech in the First Amendment. I've been a constitutional scholar. I filed briefs to the Supreme Court on, on these sorts of issues. Uh, but I did not have nearly as much of a focus on uh, either free speech or higher education policy uh, as I do now. So, um, you know, I've pivoted and I've, I've used the platform I was given, the, uh, the uh, uh, unexpected opportunity to take my career in a different uh, uh, direction um, doesn't justify what happened, but uh, you know you try to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. The Penn president was, I suppose, you know, pressured to resign after her performance uh, at that hearing. So in in the end, how does that fit with this you know cancellation concept that we're talking about? Well, if you fail at your job, uh, there can be consequences for that. It's not that. Uh, you know, and you can fail your, at your job by poor public speaking. So it doesn't, you know, in a sense, there are consequences or, or punishment for, for speaking poorly, but it's not the same thing as, you know, having an offer to Harvard, uh, to an uh, offer of admission to Harvard rescinded because somebody unearths some uh, Instagram post of yours from when you were 12 years old, as has happened. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people have uh, gone down for far lesser crimes than, uh, Harvard's president's performance, let alone her plagiarism and, and all that. Uh, but Liz McGill, the erstwhile Penn president, uh, like all of them, uh, put on a poor performance, uh, 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 not a good leader, um, did not have their institutions come out looking well. Uh, if anything, further uh, lowered public confidence in what are supposed to be three of the leading uh, higher education institutions uh, in the country. And of course the role of the, of the university president, a lot of it is PR. A lot of it is preserving the brand, enhancing the brand, attracting donors, attracting prestige. And, and as we're discussing here, you know, having moral clarity, right? Like you would think, you're entrusting, again, your young people to, to someone. One would hope that they, you know, don't have this weird equivalency around issues as extreme as genocide. And also the, 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 the rank hypocrisy. Uh, imagine any other minority group rather than Jews. Imagine a, a hypothetical if, if Elise Stefanik had asked about, uh, you know, let's say people are, are, are chanting lynch all the blacks or something like that or uh, kill all the Arabs. Uh, that would not have been allowed. The answer would have been much different. Uh, and so, um, you know, hypocrisy is not necessarily uh, a crime. Uh, but it certainly makes you look bad, and it's a failure of, of, of leadership uh, uh, in that sense. And by the way, it could uh, make these schools, it still might, because there are pending lawsuits, including against these institutions, uh, for uh, failing to preserve a, uh, a safe uh, and equal access to educational opportunities and, and an educational environment under Title VI of the Education Acts. That is, all recipients of federal funds, not just state schools, but all of these schools receive research grants, student loans, et cetera, and they're, they're, they're liable for various things, non-discrimination policies is one, but also uh, creating a, a, a healthy 
uh, uh, environment. And if it can be shown, as I think it can, from the perspective of speech policies, that uh, other minority groups are treated differently than Jews, then that shows that uh, Jews are, are disfavored. And so uh, there's a lot going on there. But uh, Liz McGill, the reason why she is now gone and the other two, for now at least, are hanging on is because there had, she, she had undergone criticism uh, of her response to uh, uh, October 7th in the first place. There was a, an anti-Semitic uh, literary festival that she botched the, the PR of uh, various things, kind of. This was just the latest, uh, and so she was uh, pushed out after some donors closed their wallets. Uh, we'll see. It's still, uh, it's still a moving um, target with the others. MIT famously, uh, even after admitting that's, that, that some students violated their rules, on blocking access to buildings, uh, but then said, oh, we're not going to punish those students because a lot of them are foreign and they're here on student visas. And it turns out if you punish them for these kinds of uh, violations, then they lose their visas and they have to leave the country. And so in effect, MIT has created a system where foreign students can harass and intimidate, uh, but American students can't. Lots of weird things, again, going on from the uneven enforcement of what otherwise are pretty good rules and policies at all of these places. Jan, I want to tell you, neither the laws, the criminal laws or the civil laws, federal, state, nor university policies at most places are to blame for what we're seeing. It's their uneven enforcement or non-enforcement. Well, so that's fascinating. Let, let's go back to free speech for a moment because you've we've kind of explored you know a bit what's protected what's not what are some you know let's say exemptions how policy uh, you know applies where does this sort of intersection of speech and conduct happen because you know harassment this is an area where it might not be obvious for example right and then I wanted just to look at areas where you mentioned one just now where conduct people will say I'm protected through free speech but actually what's happening is conduct right so so let, let's start with harassment when does something become conduct and not speech there has to be targeting of someone or someone's particular individuals uh, and there has to be something that's severe and pervasive so you know one cat call down the street probably is not gonna be sufficient but if people are following around a student or a group of students and yelling things at them and kind of disturbing their ability to go about their lives or their educations, that's harassment. Or as happened, I think, on Harvard Yard, uh, a bunch of students uh, crowded around uh, one uh, Israeli student, or, or at least a student with, a, with an Israeli flag, and um, were menacing. In, uh, there's a state crime, uh, as well as a tort, uh, called menacing, where you're sort of intimidating someone with your physical presence, you know, looking like you're about to strike them. Uh, for that matter, to uh, commit the tort of assault, you don't have to physically touch someone. It's uh, a reasonable apprehension of, uh, you know, uh, imminent threat of, of, of some sort. So um, it doesn't matter what your motive is, whether you have an expressive motive uh, or not, whether it's based on uh, hate, whether it's based on anything else. Um, but uh, there are rules against, again, vandalism, assault, uh, harassment, intimidation, menacing, all of these different you know, physical actions that are, uh, are as much crimes or torts, meaning civil wrongs that you can be sued for, uh, uh, regardless of any expressive content to them. Some common slogans which I've come across, globalize the intifada, some officials have said, well, that's not a call to violence necessarily. 
the Intifada, there are several campaigns that were initiated by uh, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that involved suicide bombers on buses and cafes and pizzerias and daycares and things like that. Uh, it was extremely violent. Um, uh, specifically, Intifada in the Palestinian context is armed violent resistance. So someone might be ignorant and not know that, but the objective understanding is violence, calling for violence. So there's one you know, statement, globalize the Intifada. Another one is, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Of course, implication being, you know, wipe out the state of Israel. Yeah, let's um, be clear on that, yeah. because in surveys, a lot of students who are chanting this apparently don't know this, don't know even what river, what sea. So it's from the Jordan River, uh, which is the boundary between Israel uh, and, uh, and Jordan, the country of Jordan, uh, to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, if you wipe that out, from the river to the sea, that's going to be all Palestine, which means you get rid of Israel, get rid of the Jews. It's an eliminationist slogan, and again, many students might not know this, but the objective truth of what that means, and it comes from the, the Arabic translation of what that, in, in Arabic what they chant is, from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be Arab. Uh, and they translate that for, for rhyming purposes in English to say, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But the, the, the objective meaning uh, is uh, to get rid of Israel, to get rid of the Jews. But Bo both of those are protected They speech. are protected. Yeah. Unless in certain contexts, and here Liz McGill was correct, in a certain context that loses its protection. If you're having those chants uh, in front of a Hanukkah service, if you're having those chants outside a synagogue or a, uh, a Hillel or, or something like that, because that is obviously targeting uh, threats of violence. It doesn't rise to the level of incitement of violence, again, unless the chants are also, and you know, when those people get out of that uh, you know, synagogue, make sure to hit them or something like that. Um, but it can be harassment or intimidation. Someone might have in mind lots of different things. At Yale, they famously redefine words so that they mean the opposite of what they actually mean. But you can't play these semantic games uh, in the law. Uh, sometimes it might be a jury question, I suppose, but courts can take notice of the objective meaning of, of certain words. Uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court decides the meaning of, uh, I don't know, interstate commerce under the Constitution for, 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 right, for, for definitions of, of the scope of federal power. Uh, and so uh, I suppose you could have a, a, a mini trial uh, in a district court over uh, what the true meaning of all this stuff is. Uh, but, you know, I've done some research into this, and it's, uh, when, you, when you look into what it, what it means, regardless of what any one person might mean it subjectively, the the, the, the general public meaning of these terms are, are violent eliminationist. So I was just at a, an event where uh, a young woman, Hong Konger, who's in D.C., yesterday the, the Hong Kong government has announced a $1 million Hong Kong dollar bounty on her head. It's for, for speech and, and organizing and things like that. But one thing that she said was that there was a student on her campus um, where that actually issued a death threat towards her. And from what she could tell, there really were no repercussions. Mm. The student graduated. Mm. Um, and so, so in a situation like that, right, presumably there's school policy that, that applies here. But it's also, I don't think, I don't think death threats are protected. That's right. Yeah. That, that's right. If it's a true, credible threat. As in, like, they said it. Is that an effort to be a true, credible threat? If, I mean, I don't know the facts of this specific yeah. case, yeah, yeah, but yeah. there's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a certain legal bar that you have to say that 
You know, th this happens with people who threaten the lives of public officials from time to time, and they get they get uh, visited by the FBI and often arrested. And like I said, this uh, this Cornell student uh, about a month ago uh, who was issuing threats and got arrested uh, because they were seen as uh, you know credible and, in, and understanding what the words meant, and yet you wrote them. And uh, this has gone to the Supreme Court. Do you actually have to have in your mind the idea that you're going to kill someone? Well, if that person. Uh, objectively and reasonably fears that based on what you said that you're a threat to them, then that's a true threat. Well, okay, so in other words, I say to someone, I'm going to kill you, right? Now, of course, in this case, there's a sort of the weight of a regime known to be committing genocide kind of behind it. So I think that adds a bit of weight, I suppose, or does it? I, th I think it does. I mean, it, again, it depends on the context. It's like, well, is, like, let's say the student had posted, well, I was wavering about this, but now that there's a, you know, a reward for going after this other person, I'm definitely going to go get her. But it's a matter of criminal law. It's not just school policy. Mm -hmm. Making right. death threats, credible death threats, is illegal. It's a crime. Another example of what incitement of violence might be, or an exception to the protections, uh, if you recall back in October, there was a, a rally or a, or, a, or a parade, a protest uh, in Los Angeles. And they were chanting, you know, from the river to the sea, all these slogans. And uh, a gentleman with, a, with an Israeli flag uh, was killed. He was struck. Uh, it turns out it was, a, I think, a community college professor who struck him with a megaphone. And that man fell and, and further hit his head and ended up dying. Uh, there's no video, I think, of the chants, but it could well be that some of that speech was uh, inciting the, that kind of violence. But it has only become that way once we know what was done with it. I mean, this is like, how can someone possibly know that what will happen after they say, because the protections are pretty strong. Right? You have to be saying, go after that person right now, basically, if I understand it correctly. Well, who, again, we don't know specifically what was chanted. If, if you know, Right. If, if, that, if there's a witness who says, well, I heard, you know, the folks that are around this, this guy who ultimately, you know, used the megaphone to, to, to hit this other man, uh, the folks around there were saying, you know, let's, uh, let's go after anybody with an Israeli flag, or, oh, look, that guy has an Israeli flag, that might be enough at that point. Okay, very interesting. So then there would be other, basically, complicit people other than the actual person. Right. Right. I wanted to talk a little bit about this group that's gotten a bit of press, the Students for Justice in Palestine. They put out this uh, resistance toolkit. Are you familiar yeah. with that? So, so this goes to some slightly different issues. You know, we were dealing with individuals, you know, what, what, what speech is protected, what's conduct, what can be regulated. Then we talked a little bit about the duties of schools and their policies, Title VI, and what, can be, what they have to enforce and things like this. This raises another issue. What about organizations, not individuals, but the rights of organizations to exist and to engage in expressive activity? Uh, a number of schools, uh, Columbia, Brandeis, I think uh, at least one or two others, have disestablished or deregistered their local chapters of the Students for Justice in Palestine, um, uh, saying that this group uh, uh, foments activity that is against our policies. Florida went further for their public institutions. Uh, the chairman of their board of governors uh, announced the disestablishment, and Governor DeSantis, uh, I think, made the announcement, uh, the disestablishment, the defunding of SJP chapters at all public uh, institutions in Florida. That was paused temporarily, 
uh, based on concerns of how the order was organized, whether there would be liability for individual uh, faculty members or staff or what have you, uh, and there's some fact-finding now going on about certain things. But the key thing with that group, with respect to public institutions at least, is that there are both federal and state laws against material support for terrorism. What does that mean? The Supreme Court has interpreted it to mean something more than engaging in violence. So it can be even advice. Uh, it can be uh, public relations. Uh, the key is that there has to be some sort of coordination or cooperation. So there has to be a close enough tie between the National Students for Justice in Palestine organization with Hamas or some other recognized terrorist organization, uh, and then they're coordinating uh, also with the local chapters. That would be reason enough to disestablishment, to disestablish them, the, 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 the chapters. Now, this doesn't mean that the students who are members of SJP would then be uh, arrested or punished or expelled or something like that. That's a different question. That again goes to what each individual student might be doing. But in terms of disestablishing or defunding, at least with, with public funds, uh, uh, organizations like that, the material support for terrorism uh, aspect uh, has been playing a large role. And what about this resistance toolkit? Are you familiar with this? Yeah. yeah. Well, it it you know it, it had uh, uh, you know what what things to chant, and it even had branding materials like the hand glider logos that started appearing on all these rallies, hearkening to the uh, the Hamas fighters who uh, paraglided in uh, over the fences into the to murder the the kids who were partying in that in that uh, uh, in that rave in the South Desert. Um, uh, so there, there is coordination. I think it's quite clear that there's coordination between the national organization and these local chapters. Um, uh, the question is, you know, uh, what, what is their tie exactly to Hamas or Islamic Jihad or some other uh, uh, recognized terrorist organization? And you're saying as long as the, the tie isn't clear and it's, you know, just discretionary somehow? Well, uh, uh, the Attorney General of Virginia is investigating the ties between uh, uh, various uh, uh, charities that uh, uh, allegedly have uh, connections to Hamas or uh, related organizations. Um, I mean, uh, the general counsel of any university or of, uh, of the public university system of a state will have to make a judgment call as to whether there's, you know, more likely than not uh, that, uh, that this is a problem. And ultimately, you know, as they conduct their investigation, or as you know, SJP might file a lawsuit saying, what, "What is this? We want our rights back. We want our funding back." Then it gets litigated in court, and then there's discovery, meaning you get the information, uh, and the court evaluates that. Now, there have not been lawsuits by SJP uh, against either the private schools or Florida, which might indicate either that there's something to this material support allegation or that there's other stuff uh, that would have gotten out in discovery that they don't want to see the light of day. October 7th and what happened subsequently out here in, in the U.S. and frankly all over the world kind of provides this fascinating foil to explore all of these issues They're directly, right? It's, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be classes taught about this period uh, from multiple perspectives. Uh, on campus, uh, it's really led to the scales falling from a lot of people's eyes. Uh, Bill Ackman, who's a you know, multi-millionaire, billionaire uh, investor, has become the biggest thorn in the side of the Harvard Corporation, uh, the, the board that, that, that oversees the president and everybody else at Harvard. Um, 
uh, also was was attacking Liz McGill and and you know has very become very active on Twitter now has been uh, you know led the charge of CEOs who said that they wouldn't hire anyone who signed the uh, the Harvard letter that uh, blamed Israel for the the attack on Israel and and, and things like that so we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, external stakeholders donors alumni employers state legislators. Uh, attorneys general's offices uh, and others that all of a sudden are paying attention and you know not just conservatives this is the point middle of the road people who otherwise thought that well these complaints from the right about DEI offices or free speech or whatever that's just whatever it is it's it's it doesn't concern us but now they're seeing uh, through such an extreme unfortunate circumstance um, that a lot of this stuff that's going on just uh, is is crushing to uh, the continuation of our institutions of higher education against people becoming educated. The spirit of free inquiry. Um, there's the bureaucratic part that that, that we've we've referenced. There's also this you know, decolonialism, uh, uh, oppressor oppressed uh, stuff that's being disproportionately taught uh, in in multiple academic departments. Um, that's really poisoning uh, the minds of uh, of students, and of course, students eventually enter the real world. It's not like it's, the stuff magically goes away once they have that diploma in hand. Well, so do you feel like this is an inflection point? It could be. I mean, we we can't tell. We're in the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, five years from now. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, uh, you know, in the new year. The the semester has ended as we record this. Uh, maybe the last final exams are, are, are going on. Students return to campus in the new year. Uh, there's going to be a bit of a break. Um, uh, we'll see what uh, the latest developments are in, in the war in Israel, for that matter. There's a very, it's a fascinating uh, juxtaposition or correlation between geopolitics and, and, and campus governance, uh, really, as well as you know what's going on in in Congress. I mean, it, it's just affected so much of our daily public and private lives these last two months. And also, it seems to be one of the first kind of significant fissures, I think, in the what I would call the left, or maybe the extreme left. Even I don't know. I don't know if that's right. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, the the broad middle. Uh, what 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 people who spend all their time online call the normies, the normal people who aren't talking politics all the time, who aren't paying attention to what this or that celebrity tweeted or, or, or what have you, are starting to pay attention and they're saying, you know, that's that's not right. And there's something palpably different from the decades old conservative complaint that, well, the, the liberals have taken over the faculty lounge. This is not the Berkeley hippies. In fact, the Berkeley hippies now, you know, boomer professors, are afraid of this illiberal radical left that seems to want to cancel, if not kill them, uh, for having uh, divergent views. You meant we, we you just mentioned Oklahoma that they're defunding DI right in public institutions, if I understood you correctly. And there's many many initiatives like this happening. Florida, Texas, Tennessee, South Dakota. I think I'm missing one and a couple other executive orders. And I think that in the in the in next year's state legislative sessions, there's going to be more taken up. Uh, yeah, so there's multiple things here. Steve Pinker, who's a Harvard professor, very interesting guy, wrote a piece, an op-ed in the Boston Globe uh, 
uh, earlier this week, uh, as we're recording this, that talks about disempowering DEI structures. He's a little softer than, than abolish DEI, which is what I would propose, but disempower DEI structures. You know, if, you're, if, if some, someone's actually wanting to make people feel more welcome and included, that's great. The problem is these DEI offices seem to be correlated with uh, decrease in, in student comfort or feeling of belonging on campus, which is remarkable. Um, uh, strengthen free speech and actually enforce the free speech protections. Um, get rid of uh, discrimination by viewpoint in hiring and admissions. So this goes to diversity statements. This goes to uh, you know, faculty who, after all, hire their future colleagues. You know, the, the, fact the members of the sociology department hire the, the next members of the sociology department or the law school or the medical school, what have you. Uh, so get rid of these kind of... Uh, 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 discrimination based on on ideology and make it just based on on merit. Um, there's a couple more that I'm I'm leaving out, but I commend that uh, that op-ed by by Steve Pinker. Um, fundamentally, it's it's changing the culture. Uh, deans, presidents, department chairs uh, have all the tools. They're quite good at instilling whatever virtues or, or or cultures that they want, whether that be public service, whether that be uh, inclusion, whether that be entrepreneurship, giving back to the community, whatever, uh, you know, excellence, rigor, I mean, whatever you want, they need to instill ideas, uh, re-instill uh, these classical values of open inquiry, freedom of speech, academic freedom, the idea that education is supposed to make you feel a little uncomfortable, to challenge your views. Uh, if all you're ever taught or told in college is things that you already know and are comfortable with, then what's the point of, of doing four years of that? Um, Hannah Holborn Gray, who's a former president of the University of Chicago, which is one of the exceptions that proves the rule. Not, it's not perfect at UChicago, which is where I went to law school, uh, but they are really the gold standard for free speech policies, institutional neutrality, so universities aren't constantly taking positions on political controversies, uh, and uh, uh, not having ideological screens for, for hiring. Uh, those, that's called the Chicago trifecta, the, uh, the free speech principles, the Calvin report on institutional neutrality, and the Schills report on uh, merit-based hiring. But anyway, she said, uh, President uh, Hannah Holborn Gray, that education, uh, the purpose of education is to take you out of your comfort zone and make you feel uncomfortable. That is how you grow. I mean, that's a measure of learning when you're feeling, oh, I don't have this concept yet. I'm not sure whether I agree with that. I've never heard that before. Let me evaluate that. Let me apply these critical thinking skills that I've been taught to this new problem. I mean, that is what education and learning is. It's not saying that idea offends me so much or threatens my existence as a person. I mean, come on. This is, this is part of the problem. We've brought in these uh, cognitive behavioral therapy ideas of safetyism. That is not the way that we engage in uh, open inquiry. That's not the way that we discuss things. Uh, it's closing, it's shutting the door uh, to learning. And so, again, university officials have to counteract that. They have to put in uh, a culture of open inquiry and, and uh, uh, a, a freedom to say something that someone else might not like. Um, there's a whole cohort, maybe even a generation, I don't know, of, of young people who have been you know, deeply schooled in this kind of ideology. And I think, I don't think it affects everyone equally because it's, it's I find, I call it kind of an anti-reality ideology and some people are just not gonna go with that. But nonetheless, we are seeing, you know, I'm thinking back to COVID time and there was that letter of 2,000 
odd health professionals that said, well, we, we should suspend, you know, we, we destroyed the global economy to shut everything down, but because, of, because racism is an issue, that's actually a more important thing than this virus. You, 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 you see what I'm getting at? There's, in, in medical schools even, which is you would think that this, these kind of things couldn't get into, um, this kind of thinking. No, this, right? this, this DEI ideology What's the, the most, it's w most worrisome exposition is in medical schools where uh, it's not just uh, affirmative action or, or, or preferences that uh, allow people that are less qualified than others to, uh, to get in, to take these spots, to become doctors. It's even for the standardized test to become a doctor, the various certifications you need to become a doctor, um, or even grading of classes uh, at these places uh, because uh, there's a supposed disparate impact that, that uh, 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 certain racial minorities, and Asians don't count, of course, for this, uh, are uh, disproportionately in the lower tiers or, of Or Jews, apparently. Or, right, right. 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 Uh, mm -hmm. But, but are, are in lower tiers of academic achievement. That makes the whole endeavor illegitimate, and so we need to change the way we produce our doctors. That's scary. It's also scary in law schools, uh, because, which is what I've been studying, and I have a book coming out next year called Canceling Justice, the Illiberal Takeover of Legal Education, because lawyers are the gatekeepers of our political and legal institutions. Uh, the Constitution, uh, like, as we've seen with, with speech policies on campus, that's a parchment barrier. If people don't understand it, don't want to enforce it, uh, it's not a self-enforcing mechanism. And so if our future lawyers don't believe that there's objective truth or think that the adversarial system where everyone gets a proper defense and you're innocent before you've proven, you've proven guilty and you get due process, if they don't believe in that, well, you know, Katie, bar the door, uh, then we've lost America. Talk about systemic. You hear that word a lot. This appears to be a systemic problem. Here's the thing. I'm preternaturally optimistic. Um, I'm not sure about higher education. Uh, I'm less pessimistic than I was a year and a half ago when I left Georgetown. Uh, so we are now, you know, in the eye of this storm and maybe even there's hope for, for higher ed. Uh, luckily my oldest son is about to turn eight, so we have about ten years uh, to see the lay of the land. Uh, but America more broadly, society more broadly, I have quite a bit of uh, optimism. Like. Uh, like uh, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, discussed at his confirmation hearing. I live, I live on the sunrise side uh, of the mountain. And as kind of more average people, or even elites that aren't politically active, like the Bill Ackmans of the world, as they pay attention and they see that there, there are these pathologies, that there's this rot, uh, all it takes is not acquiescing to it, uh, because it is certainly not a majority view, even among the youth. Um, there's not majority support for that. We've seen that in the pushback to Bud Light. We've seen that uh, with Netflix. There was some spat over the Dave Chappelle's trans jokes and what have you. There, anyway, we've seen green shoots in corporate America. Uh, and I think with, with the Israel-Hamas developments, as more and more normal, average, non-political people are observing, uh, well, some of these weird things seem to have escaped the sociology lab uh, they're standing up to it rather than just trying to keep their head down uh, and, and not be canceled because there's, there's safety in numbers. Uh, if the silent majority, as it were, or the non-politically active majority says, you know, that is nonsense, we're not going to allow it, whether it be in our corporations, in our prosecutor's offices, uh, in, you know, any in civic organizations, what have you, uh, that's what's going to take it to, to take to, to stop it. 
So, you know, as we finish, I want to go back to these university presidents because one has resigned, as we discussed. And, but in the case of another one, Harvard, um, you know, Harvard has seems to have heavily doubled down on keeping her. And it seems that Harvard has said that they've do, they're doing this not for meritorious reasons, but because they don't want to give a win to Elise Stefanik, the Republican congresswoman who did the most damaging questioning of the presidents, and they don't want to give a win to Bill Ackman for his uh, for his activism, both online and, and wallet uh, related. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are uh, uh, saying that uh, uh, Claudine Gay, the Harvard president, just is is too damaged. Um, in a sense, there's some those of us who want who, who criticize uh, academia, who love it to be completely reformed. Uh, there's there's utility both in the McGill resignation and in Gay staying on to continue being that example of everything that's wrong uh, with higher ed, especially at its most elite levels. Harvard President Claudine Gay has resigned from her position since the recording of this interview. There's one uh, mantra that uh, I learned, I took to heart during my uh, uh, saga with Georgetown, uh, and that is the, the writing of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, um, the dissident uh, uh, Russian critic, uh, illiberal himself in many ways. He was uh, very Eastern Orthodox and you know, didn't like parts of the West as well, decadence in certain things, that kind of critique. But uh, coming out of the gulag, where he had spent some time, his big lesson was live not by lies. They might put you to death. They might arrest you. They might discipline you in lots of ways, they being the, the illiberal oppressors from right, left, or wherever. Um, but don't let the lie prosper through you. Because um, the more people that, that refuse to do that, you have this, you solve the collective action problem. You, you have society point out and recognize that the emperor has no clothes. And that's fundamentally how you have transformative change. Well, Ilya Shapiro, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. It's a great discussion. It's not often you get to spend uh, this much time going in depth, but these are important uh, issues at, uh, at a pivotal time in our nation's history, in the West's history. Well, thanks for being with us. Thank you all for joining Ilya Shapiro and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.